Chapter 9 No one ever made a decision because of a number. They need a story. Daniel Kahneman, Economist Jim Simons seemed to have discovered the perfect way to trade commodities, currencies, and bonds, predictive mathematical models. Yet, Simons knew, if he wanted Renaissance technologies to amount to much of anything, he'd have to get his computers to make money in stocks. It wasn't clear why Simons thought he had a chance of success. The early 1990s was a golden age for fundamental investors. Those who generally chat up companies and digest annual reports, financial filings, and statements a la Warren Buffett. These investors tap instinct, cunning, and experience. It was all about brain power, not computing power. When it came to stocks, Simon seemed well out of his depth. Peter Lynch was a paragon of the fundamental approach. From 1977 to 1990, Lynch's prescient stock picks helped Fidelity Investments' Magellan Mutual Fund grow from a $100 million pipsqueak into a $16 billion power, averaging annual gains of 29%, beating the market in 11 of those years. Ignoring historic and overlooked pricing patterns, the stuff Simon's obsessed over, Lynch said investors could trounce the market simply by sticking with companies they understood best. Know what you own was Lynch's mantra. Searching for story stocks that he believed would experience surging earnings, Lynch made a killing on Dunkin' Donuts, the donut retailer beloved in Fidelity's home state of Massachusetts, purchasing shares partly because the company didn't have to worry about low-priced Korean imports. Another time, Lynch's wife, Carolyn, brought home a pair of legs, a brand of pantyhose that was stuffed into distinctive egg-shaped plastic containers and sold in supermarket and drugstore checkout aisles. Carolyn loved legs, so her husband did too, backing up the truck to buy shares of its manufacturer, Hanes, even though most hosiery products at the time were sold in department stores and women's clothing stores, not in drugstores. I did a little bit of research, Lynch later explained. I found out the average woman goes to the supermarket or a drugstore once a week, and they go to a woman's specialty store or department store once every six weeks. And all the good hosiery, all the good pantyhose, is being sold in department stores. They were selling junk in the supermarkets. When a rival brand of pantyhose was introduced, Lynch bought 48 pairs and asked employees to test them out, determining they couldn't match the quality of his legs. Over time, Lynch rode Haynes to a gain of 10 times his fund's initial investment. Lynch's most important tool was his telephone, not his computer. He'd regularly call, or sometimes visit, a network of well-placed executives, asking for updates on their businesses, competitors, suppliers, customers, and more. These were legal tactics at the time, even though smaller investors couldn't access the same information. The computer won't tell you if a business trend is going to last a month or a year, Lynch said. By 1990, one out of every 100 Americans was invested in Magellan, and Lynch's book, One Up on Wall Street, sold more than a million copies, inspiring investors to search for stocks from the supermarket to the workplace. As Fidelity came to dominate mutual funds, it began sending young analysts to call on hundreds of companies each year. Lynch's successors, including Jeffrey Vinnick, used the trips to gain their own, entirely legal, information advantage over rivals. 
Vinick would ask us to have conversations with cab drivers on our way from and to the airport to get a sense of the local economy or the particular company we were visiting, recalls J. Dennis Jean-Jacques, who was a fidelity analyst at the time. We would also eat in the company cafeteria or at a nearby restaurant so we could ask the waiter questions about the company across the street. As Lynch and Vinick racked up big gains in Boston, Bill Gross was on the other side of the country, on the shores of Newport Beach, California, building a bond empire at a company called Pacific Investment Management Company, or PIMCO. Gross, who paid his way through business school with blackjack winnings after reading Ed Thorpe's book on gambling, was especially adept at predicting the direction of global interest rates. He became well-known in the financial world for thoughtful, colorful market observations, as well as a unique look. Each day, Gross wore open-collared, custom-made dress shirts with a tie draped loosely around his neck, a style adopted after vigorous exercise and yoga sessions left him overheated and unwilling to knot his tie once in the office. Like Simon's, Gross used a mathematical approach to dissect his investments, though Gross melded his formulas with a heavy dose of intuition and intelligence. Gross emerged as a true market savant in 1995, after a huge wager on falling interest rates generated gains of 20% for his bond mutual fund, which became the largest ever of its kind. Investors crowned him the Bond King, a name that would stick as Gross began an extended reign atop debt markets. Around the same time, so-called macro investors grabbed headlines and instilled fear in global political leaders with their own distinct style. Instead of placing thousands of bets, like Simon's, these traders made the bulk of their profits from a limited number of gutsy moves aimed at anticipating global political and economic shifts. Stanley Druckenmiller was one of the traders on the ascent. A shaggy-haired Pittsburgh native who had dropped out of a PhD program in economics, Druckenmiller was a top-performing mutual fund manager before taking over George Soros's billion-dollar hedge fund, the Quantum Fund. Thirty-five years old at the time, Druckenmiller arrived at his investment decisions after scrutinizing news and studying economic statistics and other information, aiming to place his trades well ahead of big global events. It only took six months for Soros to regret hiring Druckenmiller. As Druckenmiller flew to Pittsburgh, Soros dumped his bond positions without even a warning, worried they were losers. Apprised of the move after landing, Druckenmiller found a nearby payphone and called in his resignation. A bit later, back in the office, nerves calmed and apologies issued, Soros said he was departing for a six-month trip to Europe, a separation period, to see if Druckenmiller's early losing streak was due to us having too many cooks in the kitchen or whether you're just inept. Months later, the Berlin Wall dividing West Germany and East Germany was opened and eventually toppled. The world cheered, but investors worried the West German economy and its currency, the Deutschmark, would be crippled by a merger with much poorer East Germany. That view didn't make much sense to Druckenmiller. An influx of cheap labor seemed likely to bolster the German economy, not hurt it, and the German central bank could be expected to bolster its currency to keep inflation at bay. I had a very strong belief that the Germans were obsessed with inflation, Druckenmiller recalls noting that surging inflation after World War I had paved the way for the rise of Adolf Hitler. 
There was no way they would let the currency go down. With Soros out of the way, Druckenmiller placed a huge bet on Deutschmarks, resulting in a gain of nearly 30% for the Quantum Fund in 1990. Two years later, with Soros back in New York and relations improved between the two men, Druckenmiller walked into Soros' expansive midtown office to share his next big move, slowly expanding an existing wager against the British pound. Druckenmiller told Soros authorities in the country were bound to break from the European exchange rate mechanism and allow the pound to fall in value, helping Britain emerge from recession. His stance was unpopular, Druckenmiller acknowledged, but he professed confidence the scenario would unfold. Complete silence from Soros. Then, an expression of bewilderment. Soros gave a look like I was a moron, Druckenmiller recalls. That doesn't make sense, Soros told him. Before Druckenmiller had a chance to defend his thesis, Soros cut him off. Trades like this only happen every 20 years or so, Soros said. He was imploring Druckenmiller to expand his bet. The quantum fund sold short about $10 billion of the British currency. Rivals, learning what was happening or arriving at similar conclusions, were soon doing the same, pushing the pound lower while exerting pressure on British authorities. On September 16, 1992, the government abandoned its efforts to prop up the pound, devaluing the currency by 20%, earning Druckenmiller and Soros more than $1 billion in just 24 hours. The fund gained over 60% in 1993 and soon controlled over $8 billion of cash from investors, dwarfing anything Simons dreamed of managing. For more than a decade, the trade would be considered the greatest ever, a testament to how much can be made with heavy doses of savvy and moxie. It was self-evident that the surest way to score huge sums in the market was by unearthing corporate information and analyzing economic trends. The idea that someone could use computers to beat these seasoned pros seemed far-fetched. Jim Simons, still struggling to make money trading stocks, didn't need any reminder. Kepler Financial, the company launched by former Morgan Stanley math and computer specialist Robert Frey that Simons had backed, was just plodding along. The firm was improving on the statistical arbitrage strategies Frey and others had employed at Morgan Stanley by identifying a small set of market-wide factors that best explained stock moves. The trajectory of United Airlines shares, for example, is determined by the stock's sensitivity to the returns of the overall market, changes in the price of oil, the movement of interest rates, and other factors. The direction of another stock, like Walmart, is influenced by the same explanatory factors, though the retail giant likely has a very different sensitivity to each of them. Kepler's twist was to apply this approach to statistical arbitrage, buying stocks that didn't rise as much as expected based on the historic returns of these various underlying factors, while simultaneously selling short, or wagering against, shares that underperformed. If shares of Apple Computer and Starbucks each rose 10% amid a market rally, but Apple historically did much better than Starbucks during bullish periods, Kepler might buy Apple and short Starbucks. Using time series analysis and other statistical techniques, Frey and a colleague searched for trading errors, behavior not fully explained by historic data tracking the key factors, 
on the assumption that these deviations likely would disappear over time. Betting on relationships and relative differences between groups of stocks, rather than outright rise or fall of shares, meant Frey didn't need to predict where shares were headed, a difficult task for anyone. He and his colleagues also didn't really care where the overall market was going. As a result, Kepler's portfolio was market-neutral, or reasonably immune to the stock market's moves. Frey's models usually just focused on whether relationships between clusters of stocks returned to their historic norms, a reversion to the mean strategy. Constructing a portfolio of these investments figured to dampen the fund's volatility, giving it a high Sharp ratio. Named after economist William F. Sharp, the Sharp ratio is a commonly used measure of returns that incorporates a portfolio's risk. A high Sharp suggests a strong and stable historic performance. Kepler's hedge fund, eventually renamed Nova, generated middling results that frustrated clients, a few of whom bolted. The fund was subsumed into Medallion while Frey continued his efforts, usually without tremendous success. The problem wasn't that Frey's system couldn't discover profitable strategies. It was unusually good at identifying profitable trades and forecasting the movement of groups of shares. It was that, too often, the team's profits paled in comparison to those predicted by their model. Frey was like a chef with a delicious recipe who cooked a series of memorable meals but dropped most of them on the way to the dinner table. Watching Frey and his colleagues flail, some Renaissance staffers began to lose patience. Laufer, Patterson, and the others had developed a sophisticated system to buy and sell various commodities and other investments, featuring a betting algorithm that adjusted its holdings given the range of probabilities of future market moves. Frey's team had nothing of the sort for stocks. Staffers carped that his trading model seemed much too sensitive to tiny market fluctuations. It sometimes bought shares and sold them before they had a chance to rise, spooked by a sudden move in price. There was too much noise in the market for Frey's system to hear any of its signals. It would take two oddballs to help solve the problem for Simons. One rarely talked. The other could barely sit still. As Nick Patterson worked with Henry Laufer in the early 1990s to improve Medallion's predictive models, he began a side job he seemed to relish as much as discovering overlooked price trends, recruiting talent for Renaissance's growing staff. To upgrade the firm's computer systems, for example, Patterson helped hire Jacqueline Rosinski as the first systems administrator. Rosinski, whose husband ditched an accounting career to become a captain in the New York City Fire Department, would eventually head information technology and other areas. Later, women would manage legal and other departments, but it would be a while before they'd play significant roles on the research, data, or trading sides of the operation. It wasn't that the company had a problem hiring women. Like other trading firms, Renaissance didn't receive many resumes from female scientists or mathematicians. It's also the case that Simons and others didn't go out of their way to recruit women or minorities. Patterson required a few things from his hires. They needed to be super smart, of course, with identifiable accomplishments, such as academic papers or awards, ideally in fields lending themselves to the work Renaissance was doing. Patterson steered clear of Wall Street types. He didn't have anything against them, per se. He just was convinced he could find more impressive talent elsewhere. 
We can teach you about money, Patterson explains. We can't teach you about smart. Besides, Patterson argued to a colleague, if someone left a bank or hedge fund to join Renaissance, they'd be more inclined to bolt at some point for a rival. If the opportunity ever arose, than someone without a familiarity with the investment community. That was crucial because Simons insisted that everyone at the firm actively share their work with each other. Simons needed to trust that his staffers weren't going to take that information and run off to a competitor. One last thing got Patterson especially excited. If a potential recruit was miserable in their current job. I liked smart people who were probably unhappy, Patterson says. One day, after reading in the morning paper that IBM was slashing costs, Patterson became intrigued. He was aware of the accomplishments of the computer giant's speech recognition group and thought their work bore a similarity to what Renaissance was doing. In early 1993, Patterson sent separate letters to Peter Brown and Robert Mercer, deputies of the group, inviting them to visit Renaissance's offices to discuss potential positions. Brown and Mercer both reacted the exact same way, depositing Patterson's letter in the closest trash receptacle. They'd reconsider after experiencing family upheaval, laying the groundwork for dramatic change at Jim Simons's company and the world as a whole. Robert Mercer's lifelong passion had been sparked by his father. A brilliant scientist with a dry wit, Thomas Mercer was born in Victoria, British Columbia later becoming a world expert on aerosols, the tiny particles suspended in the atmosphere that both contribute to air pollution and cool the earth by blocking the sun. Thomas spent more than a decade as a professor of radiation biology and biophysics at the University of Rochester, before becoming department head of a foundation devoted to curing respiratory disease in Albuquerque, New Mexico. It was there that Robert, the eldest of Thomas's three children, was born in 1946. His mother, Virginia Mercer, was passionate about the theater and arts, but Robert was riveted by computers. It began the very moment Thomas showed Robert the magnetic drum and punch cards of an IBM 650, one of the earliest mass-produced computers. After Thomas explained the computer's inner workings to his son, the 10-year-old began creating his own programs, filling up an oversized notebook, Bob carried that notebook around for years before he ever had access to an actual computer. At Sandia High School and the University of New Mexico, Mercer was a bespectacled, lanky, and low-key member of the school's chess, auto, and Russian clubs. He came alive for math, though, sharing a proud, handsome smile in a photo appearing in the Albuquerque Journal after he and two classmates won top honors in a national mathematics contest in 1964. After high school graduation, Mercer spent three weeks at the National Youth Science Camp in the mountains of West Virginia. There, Mercer discovered a single computer, a donated IBM 1620, that could do 50 10-digit multiplications a second, but was neglected by most campers. Apparently, sitting indoors all day in the summer wasn't as enticing to them as it was to Mercer so he got to play with the computer as much as he wanted, learning to program in Fortran, a language developed mainly for scientists. That summer, Neil Armstrong paid a visit to the camp, five years prior to becoming the first man to set foot on the moon. 
He told the campers that astronauts were using the latest computer technology, some of it the size of a match. Mercer sat listening, mouth agape. I couldn't see how that would even be possible, he later recalled. While studying physics, chemistry, and mathematics at the University of New Mexico, Mercer got a job at a weapons laboratory at the Kirtland Air Force Base eight miles away, just so he could help program the base's supercomputer. Much as baseball players appreciate the smell of fresh-cut outfield grass or the sight of a well-groomed pitcher's mound, Mercer came to delight in the sights and smells of Kirtland's computer lab. I loved everything about computers, Mercer later explained. I loved the solitude of the computer lab late at night. I loved the air-conditioned smell of the place. I loved the sound of the disks whirring and the printers clacking. It might seem a bit unusual, even odd, for a young man to be so enthralled by a computer laboratory, but in the mid-1960s, these machines came to represent unexplored terrain and fresh possibility. A subculture developed of young computer specialists, academics, and hobbyists who stayed up late into the night coding or writing instructions so computers could solve problems or execute specified automated tasks. The instructions were given using algorithms, which entailed a series of logical step-by-step -step procedures. Bright young men and women, the programmers were counterculture rebels, boldly exploring the future, even as their peers chased the fleeting pleasures of the day, forging a spirit and energy that would change the world for decades to come. We suffered socially and psychologically for being right, says Aaron Brown, a member of the emerging coder crew, who became a senior executive of the quant trading world. As an inductee into the cult, Mercer spent the summer on the lab's mainframe computer rewriting a program that calculated electromagnetic fields generated by nuclear fusion bombs. In time, Mercer found ways to make the program 100 times faster, a real coup. Mercer was energized and enthused, but his bosses didn't seem to care about his accomplishment. Instead of running the old computations at the new, faster speed, they instructed Mercer to run computations that were 100 times the size. It seemed Mercer's revved-up speed made little difference to them, an attitude that helped mold the young man's worldview. I took this as an indication that one of the most important goals of government-financed research is not so much to get answers as it is to consume the computer budget, Mercer later said. He turned cynical viewing government as arrogant and inefficient. Years later, Mercer would embrace the view that individuals need to be self-sufficient and avoid state aid. The summer experience left me ever since with a jaundiced view of government-financed research, Mercer explained. After earning his Ph.D. in computer science at the University of Illinois, Mercer joined IBM in 1972 even though he was dismissive of the quality of the company's computers. It was a different part of the company that had impressed him. Mercer had agreed to visit the Thomas J. Watson Research Center in the New York City suburb of Yorktown Heights and was struck by hard-charging IBM staffers pushing to discover innovations that could power the company's future. Mercer joined the team and began working in the company's newly formed speech recognition group. Eventually, he was joined by a young and outgoing mathematician in a hurry to accomplish something big. As a teenager, 
Peter Brown watched his father deal with a series of daunting business challenges. In 1972, when Peter was 17, Henry Brown and a partner came up with the idea of cobbling together investments from individual investors to buy relatively safe yet higher-yielding debt, introducing the world's first money market mutual fund. Henry's fund offered higher rates than those available in bank savings accounts, but few investors had even a passing interest. Peter would help his father stuff envelopes and mail letters to hundreds of potential customers, hoping to elicit interest in the new fund. Henry worked every day that year except Christmas, resorting to eating peanut butter sandwiches and taking out a second mortgage to fund his business, as his wife, Betsy, worked as a family therapist. A combination of starvation and pure greed drove us, Henry explained to the Wall Street Journal. His lucky break came the next year in the form of a New York Times article about the fledgling fund. Clients began calling, and soon Henry and his partner were managing $100 million in their reserve primary fund. The fund grew, reaching billions of dollars, but Henry resigned in 1985 to move with Betsy to the Brown family's farm in a Virginia hamlet where he raised cattle on 500 acres. Henry also competed in trebuchet, a kind of mechanical catapult, winning competitions with a contraption that sent an eight-pound pumpkin over 1,000 feet. In their new neighborhood, Betsy became a civic activist and local democratic politician. Henry's business still dominated his thoughts, though. For more than a decade, he squabbled with his former partner, Bruce Bent, whom Henry accused of reneging on an agreement to buy his half-interest in the company. Henry eventually filed a lawsuit, claiming Bent was rewarding himself excessively while running the fund, before the men finally worked out a deal for Brown to sell his half-ownership to Brent in 1999. In 2008, the fund would lose so much money from the debt of investment bank Lehman Brothers, among other things, that its troubles would sow fear throughout the financial system. While his family had wealth, friends say Peter sometimes expressed anxiety about his finances, perhaps due to his father's early challenges or his extended battle with his partner. Peter reserved his own ambitions for science and math. After graduating from Harvard University with an undergraduate degree in mathematics, Brown joined a unit of Exxon that was developing ways to translate spoken language into computer text, an early form of speech recognition technology. Later, He'd earn a Ph.D. in computer science from Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh. In 1984, at the age of 29, Brown joined IBM's speech group, where Mercer and others had been working to develop computer software to transcribe spoken text. Conventional wisdom in the decades-old field was that only linguists and phoneticians, teaching computers rules of syntax and grammar, had a chance at getting computers to recognize language. Brown, Mercer, and their fellow mathematicians and scientists, including the group's hard-driving leader, Fred Jelinek, viewed language very differently from the traditionalists. To them, language could be modeled like a game of chance. At any point in a sentence, there exists a certain probability of what might come next, which can be estimated based on past common usage. Pi is more likely to follow the word apple in a sentence than words like him or the, for example. Similar probabilities also exist for pronunciation, the IBM crew argued. Their goal was to feed their computers with enough data of recorded speech and written text to develop a probabilistic statistical model 
capable of predicting likely word sequences based on sequences of sounds. Their computer code wouldn't necessarily understand what it was transcribing, but it would learn to transcribe language nonetheless. In mathematical terms, Brown, Mercer, and the rest of Jelinek's team viewed sounds as the output of a sequence in which each step along the way is random, yet dependent on the previous step, a hidden Markov model. A speech recognition system's job was to take a set of observed sounds, crunch the probabilities, and make the best possible guess about the hidden sequences of words that could have generated those sounds. To do that, the IBM researchers employed the Baum-Welch algorithm, co-developed by Jim Simons' early trading partner, Lenny Baum, to zero in on the various language probabilities. Rather than manually programming in static knowledge about how language worked, they created a program that learned from data. Brown, Mercer, and the others relied upon Bayesian mathematics, which had emerged from the statistical rule proposed by Reverend Thomas Bayes in the 18th century. Bayesians will attach a degree of probability to every guess and update their best estimates as they receive new information. The genius of Bayesian statistics is that it continuously narrows a range of possibilities. Think, for example, of a spam filter, which doesn't know with certainty if an email is malicious, but can be effective by assigning odds to each one received by constantly learning from emails previously classified as junk. This approach wasn't as strange as it might seem. According to linguists, people in conversation unconsciously guess the next words that will be spoken, updating their expectations along the way. The IBM team was as unique in personality as in method, especially Mercer. Tall and fit, Mercer jumped rope to stay in shape. As a younger man, he had displayed a passing resemblance to the actor Ryan Reynolds, but that was about all Mercer had in common with Hollywood Flash. He developed a laconic, efficient style of interaction, wasting few words and avoiding speaking unless he deemed it necessary, a quirk some fellow scientists appreciated. Mercer sometimes let out an, I cracked it, after solving a difficult computation, but he generally was content humming or whistling to himself all day long, usually classical music. Mercer didn't drink coffee, tea, or alcohol. He mostly stuck with Coca-Cola. On the rare occasions that he became frustrated, Mercer would yell out, bull twaddle, which colleagues understood to be an amalgam of bullshit and twaddle, or idle talk. Mercer had such long arms that his wife sewed him dress shirts with extended sleeves, as well as odd colors and patterns. At a Halloween party one year, Jelinek, who had a mean streak, came dressed as Mercer, wearing a shirt with impossibly long sleeves. Mercer laughed, along with his colleagues. Mercer got to the office at 6 o'clock in the morning and met Brown and other colleagues for lunch at 11.15 a.m. Mercer consumed the same thing almost every day, a peanut butter and jelly or tuna sandwich packed in a reusable Tupperware container or a used, folded brown paper bag, which fellow researchers interpreted as a sign of frugality. After his sandwich, Mercer would open a bag of potato chips, lay them out on a table in order of size, eat the broken ones first, and then the rest, smallest to largest. On Friday afternoons, the team met for soda, tea, cookies, and coffee cake. As they chatted, the researchers sometimes complained about IBM's substandard pay. Other times, Mercer shared sections from an etymological dictionary he found especially amusing. 
Once in a while, he'd issue statements that seemed aimed at getting a rise out of his lunchmates, such as the time he declared that he thought he would live forever. Brown was more animated, approachable, and energetic, with thick, curly brown hair and an infectious charm. Unlike Mercer, Brown forged friendships within the group, several members of which appreciated his sneaky sense of humor. As the group struggled to make progress in natural language processing, though, Brown showed impatience, directing special ire at an intern named Phil Resnick, a graduate student at the University of Pennsylvania who had earned a Bachelor of Arts in Computer Science at Harvard University and would later become a respected academic, Resnick hoped to combine mathematical tactics with linguistic principles. Brown had little patience for Resnick's approach, mocking his younger colleague and jumping on his mistakes. One day, as a dozen IBM staffers watched Resnick work through an issue on an office whiteboard, Brown ran up to him, grabbed the marker out of Resnick's hand, and sneered, this is kindergarten computer science. Resnick sat back down, embarrassed. Another time, Brown called Resnick worthless and a complete idiot. Brown developed insulting nicknames for many of his junior colleagues, members of the group recall. He called Meredith Goldsmith, the only woman in the group, Mary Death, for example, or referred to her as Jennifer, the name of a previous member of the group. Most frequently, Brown called Goldsmith Little Miss Meredith, a name the recent Yale University graduate viewed as particularly belittling. Mercer and Brown helped mentor Goldsmith, which she appreciated. But Mercer also shared his opinion with her that women belonged at home, taking care of children, not in the working world. Brown, whose wife had been appointed head of public health for New York City, viewed himself as a progressive, he valued Goldsmith's contributions and told her she was like a daughter to him. Yet that didn't stop Brown from allowing inappropriate jokes to flow amid the group's locker room environment. They told dirty jokes all the time. It was a sport, she recalls. Goldsmith eventually quit, partly due to the uncomfortable environment in the group. In a sense, they were both nice and sexist to me, Goldsmith says. I definitely felt objectified and not taken seriously. Brown didn't mean anything personal by the insults, or at least that's what members of the group told themselves. And he wasn't the only one who enjoyed chewing out or mocking others. A fierce and ruthless culture existed within the group, inspired by Jelinek's ornery personality. Researchers would posit ideas, and colleagues would do everything they could to eviscerate them, throwing personal jabs along the way. They'd fight it out until reaching a consensus on the merits of the suggestion. Twin brothers in the group, Stephen and Vincent Della Pietra, each of whom had undergraduate degrees in physics from Princeton and doctorates in physics from Harvard, leveled some of the most vicious assaults, racing to a whiteboard to prove how foolish each other's arguments had been. It was no-holds-barred intellectual combat. Outside of a research lab, such behavior might be considered rude and offensive, but many of Jelinek's staffers usually didn't take it personally. We ripped each other to shreds, recalls David Magerman, an intern on the IBM speech team. And then we played tennis together. Beyond a talent for cruel and colorful nicknames, Brown stood out for having unusual commercial instincts, perhaps the result of his father's influence. Brown urged IBM to use the team's advances to sell new products to customers, such as a credit evaluation service. 
and even tried to get management to let them manage a few billion dollars of IBM's pension fund investments with their statistical approach, but failed to garner much support. What kind of investing experience do you have? A colleague recalls an IBM executive asking Brown. None, Brown replied. At one point, Brown learned of a team of computer scientists, led by a former Carnegie Mellon classmate, that was programming a computer to play chess. He set out to convince IBM to hire the team. One winter day, while Brown was in an IBM men's room, he got to talking with Abe Pelled, a senior IBM research executive, about the exorbitant cost of the coming Super Bowl's television commercials. Brown said he had a way to get the company exposure at a much lower cost, hire the Carnegie Mellon team, and reap the resulting publicity when their machine beat a world champion in chess. The team members might also be able to assist IBM's research, Brown argued. The IBM brass loved the idea and hired the team, which brought its deep thought program along. As the machine won matches and attracted attention, though, complaints emerged. It turned out that the chess machine's name made people think of something else. Famed 1972 pornographic film Deep Throat, a movie at the forefront of what is known as the golden age of porn. Details to follow in my next book. IBM knew it faced a real problem the day the wife of a member of the chess team, who taught at a Catholic college, spoke with the college's president, an elderly nun, and the sister kept referring to IBM's amazing Deep Throat program. IBM ran a contest to rename the chess machine, choosing Brown's own submission, Deep Blue, a nod to IBM's longtime nickname, Big Blue. A few years later, in 1997, millions would watch on television as Deep Blue defeated Garry Kasparov, the chess world champion, a signal that the computing age had truly arrived. Brown, Mercer, and the rest of the team made progress enabling computers to transcribe speech. Later, Brown realized probabilistic mathematical models also could be used for translation. Using data that included thousands of pages of Canadian parliamentary proceedings featuring paired passages in French and English, the IBM team made headway toward translating text between languages. Their advances partly laid the groundwork for a revolution in computational linguistics and speech processing, playing a role in future speech recognition advances, such as Amazon's Alexa, Apple's Siri, Google Translate, text-to-speech synthesizers, and more. Despite that progress, the researchers were frustrated by IBM's lack of a clear plan to let the group commercialize its advances. Weeks after throwing Patterson's letter in the garbage, Brown and Mercer were forced to re-examine the direction of their lives. On a late winter day in southeastern Pennsylvania in 1993, Mercer's mother was killed and his sister injured when another driver skidded on ice and crashed into their car. That Easter, 20 days later, Mercer's father succumbed to a progressive illness. A few months later, when Patterson called to ask why he hadn't received a response to his previous letter, Mercer began to consider a move. Mercer's third daughter had begun college, and his family lived in a modest split-level home near ugly electrical power lines. Eating lunch out of used brown paper bags had begun to lose its charm. Just come and talk to me, Patterson said. What have you got to lose? Mercer told a colleague he was skeptical that hedge funds added anything to society. Another IBM staffer said any effort to profit from trading was hopeless because markets are so efficient. 
But Mercer came back from the visit impressed. Renaissance's offices, in a high-tech incubator on Stony Brook campus, were quite bland. But they had been designed originally as a chemistry lab, with tiny windows high up on the walls, a layout that suggested science, not finance, was the focus of Simons' firm, something that appealed to Mercer. As for Brown, he had heard of Simons, but his accomplishments meant little to him. Simons was a geometer, after all, a member of a very different field. But when Brown learned Simons' original partner was Lenny Baum, co-inventor of the Baum-Welch algorithm the IBM speech team relied upon, Brown became more enthused. By then, his wife, Margaret, had given birth to their first child, and he faced his own financial concerns. I looked at our newborn daughter and thought about Bob struggling with college bills and began to think that it might actually make some sense to work in the investment area for a few years, Brown later told a group of scientists. Simons offered to double Brown's and Mercer's salaries, and they eventually came on board in 1993. Just as tension was building over the firm's continued inability to master stock trading, some researchers and others urged Simons to terminate the effort. Frey and his team had spent enough time and still didn't have much to show for themselves, these critics said. We're wasting our time, one told Frey one day in the Renaissance lunchroom. Do we really need to do this? We're making progress, Frey insisted. Some on the Futures team said Frey should give up on his stock research and work on projects with them. Publicly and privately, Simons came to Frey's defense. Simons said he was sure the team would discover ways to make huge profits in stock trading, just as Laufer, Patterson, and others had on their thriving futures trading side business. Let's just wait a little longer, Simons told a skeptic. Other times, he tried bolstering Frey's confidence. That's good work, Simons told Frey. Never give up. Brown and Mercer watched the equity team's struggles with particular interest. Shortly after arriving from IBM, they were split up. Mercer was sent to work in the futures group, while Brown helped Frey with the stock picks. Simons was hoping to better integrate them into the firm, like kids being separated in a classroom out of fear they'd only talk to each other. In their spare time, though, Brown and Mercer met, searching for ways to solve Simons's dilemma. They thought they might have a solution. For a true breakthrough, however, they'd need help from another unusual IBM staffer. <laughs>